The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, Spidey-Dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Network: Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a Spectacular Radio, a Spectacular Spider-Man-related show that start a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter, at Spidey Dude Radio, and this show, at From Erie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, Amazon Audible, as well as Google Podcasts. It helps us raise our visibility and like, share, and subscribe for more at Spidey Dude Network, youtube.com slash Spidey Dude Network. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, instagram.com slash Network. With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Bashansky. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and joining me as usual is my partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And rejoining us is the supervising producer and co-creator of the series, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, everyone. And we are happy to introduce the writer of this episode, Bryn Chandler. Hi, all. So, Bryn, thank you very much for joining us, and um, we like to get to know new guests to the show. Um, Tell us about yourself. How did you become a writer? Um, Well, basically, I moved to L.A. from Texas, where I was a little Texas housewife, and I was living with Michael Reeves when we got a call from Filmation, from Arthur Nadell, saying that they were starting a new show called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And did Michael want to write for it? And he asked Arthur if he would read a spec script from a new writer. Arthur said if she can, this was Wednesday afternoon, he said if she can get it to me by Friday, I will read it. I had never written anything in my life 
but I took all of Michael's scripts from other shows and came up with an idea, and in two 16-hour sessions separated by about two hours of sleep, I came up with a spec script. And I would run into the other room and say, Michael, what is it? How do you say when a spaceship goes zoom through shot? And this was so long ago, before any of y'all were born, that he'd say that's called Xerox. The spaceship Xeroxes through shot. So I got the script done. We couldn't get my IBM Selectronic to print it out, so we put the whole computer in the car, drove it to Northridge where Diane Duane lived, and printed it out on hers. Took it to Arthur at Filmation. He took one look at it, dropped it on the floor and said, yeah, I'll I'll maybe read it over the weekend. Monday morning at about 9 o'clock, he called and said to Michael, tell me the truth, did you write this yourself? And that was the start of my career. Awesome. Nice. (laughs) Complete chaos. Uh, The the best way a career can start. Well, it's also the way it ended, so, <laughs> you know, at least I'm consistent. <laughs> <laughs> Just embrace the chaos. <laughs> that goes way back. I believe today Michael Shukasinski got his writing career started with that show, too. <laughs> oh, he did start. Uh, yeah. Straczynski also did start. Well, yeah, because Michael and I, it took us months to talk Straczynski into writing animation. Because back then in the 80s, it was raining soup. They would buy scripts from anybody, and they were desperate for writers. So it's like money was growing on trees. And we had been friends with Michael and Catherine and um, took a long time to talk him into trying a script. And He-Man, I believe, was the first one he sold to. All right. And how did you get the Gargoyles gig? Um, well, I was still married to Michael Reeves, and pretty much, I mean, I did stuff without him, but if he was on a show, I was on a show. Because you can't have a more dependable writer than the one that you're living with. Um <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't and done. Brynn did such a with, great job in season one that we promoted her to story editor for season two. That's true. Thank you. Thank you. But yes, that is that's how I got promoted to story editor is that I wrote a bunch of episodes <clears throat> in the first season. Um, <clears throat> Michael and I had just come off of Batman the Animated Series, and he was not done with that show. Even though the show had ended, he wanted to do something else dark like that, something else that stretched things. And so Gargoyles was a, and me too, so Gargoyles was a perfect fit for us. That is terrific. And this is something that both of you can cover, the process of writing a script, you know, being a a writer, being a story editor, being a supervising producer. I think what we usually did, um, at least this is how I would call it, Brave, feel free to correct me, (laughs) um, is... About once a month, give or take, we uh, bring everyone in. I'm talking more season two here because season one was usually me, Frank, and Michael in a room uh, mm-hmm. just sort of talking out a story. And then uh, and then Michael would go off and either write it himself or have Bryn do it or Lydia or Steve Perry or some, uh, you know, mm-hmm. one of the freelancers do it. But season two, 
we had so many, we had 52 episodes to do in the same period of time that we had done 13 episodes for season one. And so I feel like my memory is, is that once a month or so, um, we bring all the story editors together with Frank and I in the conference room at, and at Walt Disney TV animations offices in the Academy building in North Hollywood. And, mm-hmm. um, so that would be me and Frank and Michael and Bryn and, um, Gary Sperling and Carrie Bates. And I feel like, uh, Lydia had written so many, she wasn't a story editor, but she'd written, um, so many, uh, great episodes, both with Bryn and, and for Brit that often Lydia was also included. I don't think any other freelance, uh, writer was, but I feel like Lydia was there at least a few times. Um, at least and a we few just times. sort of, yeah. we, I had these index cards of like, okay, here are the stories that we need to do. Um, but they'd be like one or two words. Like maybe they had three words. That was like a lot. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> it, it might mm-hmm. say like, uh, banana cream pie or um, (laughs) or you know uh, just have the word Japan on it or Bushido or something like that or whatever and and I'd say here the group you know we we need to break the next four or five stories Um, here are the choices that we're working picking from and, and, um, generally speaking, I would say most of the time, um, there'd be some, one of those four stories would say, Oh, I want that one. You know? And again, it's not like I had a ton of, they were just, I mean, even calling them springboards is generous, but Mm -hmm. they, they were just tiny little starting points, you know, maybe. Um, and, then, you know, the group of us would all work together to talk out some basic beats. I mean, I'm not talking about outlining it in any way, but just Mm-mm. sort of basic, oh, we could do this with it. Then this could happen, you know, that kind of thing. Sort of like act one, act two, act three, like beginning, middle and end stuff, right? Um, and this, and this then, character can be featured. This could be right. a, a a Brooklyn story. This could be a Lexington story. That kind of stuff. That's how I remember right. it too. And then the story editors would go off. And again, some story editors. Uh, well, I would say nearly all story editors at least wrote some of their own episodes. Uh, I know Michael mm-hmm. did. Carrie wrote all of his. Um, Gary mm-hmm. wrote a few of his. Um, and Bryn, I think he wrote some of yours, but I can't remember like the one we're talking about today was actually one of the michaels that you wrote for michael but uh yeah but mostly but I think I, once you started story editing um you wrote some you and lydia wrote some lydia wrote some i don't remember who else you used yeah i think i had a i think contractually i had a minimum that i was supposed to write myself it was like three or five or something i don't remember but i know that that uh, usually my contracts when i story edited um i was also obligated to write a certain number of episodes so yeah but that's yeah so they, yeah brutal yeah so the yeah. story is yeah, go off and either work with another writer or just write it themselves mm-hmm. and they'd start by writing um did we even do premises? I don't remember doing premises, did we? 
I know we did Outlast. Um, I feel like the meeting sort of I, counted as the premise. I think I it remember. might have. I know. I know at Deke we did it. I had to do it the opposite. We we went to script from premise, which is which was a nightmare. But um, yeah, that's scary. Yeah, I think. I, yeah, it was. It was awful. Um, but I think I think we did go straight to outline most of the time. Right. It feels so like the, we did. Usually I mean, the writers could, yeah. would, would write a draft of outline, and then I would write um, a memo, usually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of organized my thoughts, um, because uh, I was a brand new producer. So, uh, I needed to organize my thoughts. <laughs> um, <laughs> I needed that. I, I couldn't just start. Let's just talk about this because I, I couldn't get my head around it all. I needed to sort of sit down organize my thoughts and I'd hand the memo off. And then I feel like most of the time we were able to sort of, uh, you know, between the outline and the memo go straight to script every once in a while. It was like, you know, this one we're really re- reworking. We better do a new outline. But I sometimes that new outline would just be like bullet points, this boom, boom, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And oftentimes I feel like we, we'd go right, the writer would go right to script, story editor would edit it, uh, even if that was the same person. And then it would come to me and I'd do like a final pass and then we'd record it. Mm-hmm. Etc. Storyboard, etc. Yep. I think that's how we did it. But you know, it was twenty five, six, eight years ago. So. Are, are you doing math right now? You can don't do math. Don't do math. We know you're not good at it, Craig. Stop. <laughs> So let's talk about this episode itself. What made this, to you two, a story worth telling? Well, for me, I've been a reader since I was four years old when I taught myself to read so that I could read the captions in the Roadrunner cartoons. So literacy to me is enormously important, and of of course I wanted to do a literacy episode. So yeah, I think my for me, um, I think for me the idea that intrigued me is that um, I didn't want to take it for granted that all the gargoyles could read. You know, they were coming from a medieval time when, mm-hmm. frankly, literacy was rare, um, mm-hmm. and. So my sense of things was that, well, Goliath reads. We've literally seen Goliath reading. And Lex, you know, our techno nerd, of course, he knows how to read. And it just seemed like Brooklyn was a guy who loves stories. And and so if he didn't read in the medieval era, he'd quickly see the importance of it and, and teach himself or have himself taught in the modern area. We were always a little maybe even intentionally vague about when exactly Brooklyn learned to read. But it also mm-hmm. seemed to us that uh, what it interested me to sort of approach the problem of illiteracy on two levels, because when we did a little bit of research on it, we saw that the reasons why kids don't want to read 
least tell themselves they don't want to read. Um, and the reasons why uh, adults, particularly older adults, don't want to read are have very different motivations. And we wanted to try and get into both. And the thing, of course, now that I know that didn't know back then and wasn't in the research that we immediately found at the time is that um, the role that learning disabilities play in the literacy. Um, now I know that that's a big factor, um, that people get discouraged, people come to think they're dumb, etc. Of course, they're not. They just have a different way of learning. And mm-hmm. They get discouraged, and so they stop reading. But I, I was not in 1993 or whenever we wrote this episode, uh, three or four, I guess, um, uh, aware of that aspect of it. So the aspect that the two aspects that we were aware of were kids thinking that it was useless because I'd rather just watch the movie, and adults, particularly older adults being ashamed, too ashamed to admit that they couldn't read and thus they sort of stayed illiterate because in order to learn to read, they'd have to admit that they didn't already know how. And those were real world worthwhile things for us to address. And then the trick to it was to, which I think Bryn did a wonderful job with, was to write a script that didn't feel like we were preaching, but just made it feel organic and made the sort of wonder of it um, emerge from the storytelling as opposed to, hey, we're getting up on a soapbox and we have a hammer. Let me hit you on the well, head with you, a hammer for 22 minutes. You can't get on a soap op- uh, soapbox with uh, an audience as old as ours. If, if, I was, if we had been writing this for the three- to five-year-old set, there would have been more preaching because you can preach to little bitty kids. But, um, yeah, we we stayed very far away from the soapbox because teenagers will call you on that stuff immediately. Isn't that the truth? That title is fantastical, so uh, where did that come from? That, uh, this is actually, um, it came from... <laughs> I I had just read Barbara Tuckman's book, A Distant Mirror. Is that what it's called? Um, I think so. I wrote it down. Hang on. Got to go back in the kitchen and look. Um, yeah, it's A Distant Mirror. And there was a poem in the back of it that I believe is called A Lighthouse in the Sea of Time. And so I wrote the script and everything, and the Disney lawyers came back to me and said, um, no, you need to get the rights to this poem from Barbara Tuckman, who was had passed by then. So I tracked down her husband, who was living on some small island off the East Coast somewhere, and I called up and I got a caretaker who said Dr. Tuckman is taking his nap, but when he awakes for his martini, you may speak to him then. (laughs) 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 So I waited until martini time, and I called Dr. Tuckman, and he said, what, what, what? I don't talk to little girls. You have a lawyer call me. So I said, okay. 
And I went to Disney Lawyers, and I gave them his phone number. And that was Friday night, I think. Monday morning, I was called into the offices of the Disney Lawyers, who said, no, you cannot use this poem. That old man yelled at us. <laughs> I said, I'm, and as we know, I'm sorry, lawyers you're... are traditionally so sensitive. Lawyers are so sensitive. I said, you're Disney lawyers and you've never been yelled at. Give me a break. So they said, if you can find a way to rewrite this so that that old man can't yell at us anymore, then you can use it. So I went back and called Lydia. Um, The Internet was brand, brand new, and I don't believe anybody at Disney was allowed to have Internet at that point. So I had her do some searching, and she found that the original poem that Barbara Tuckman quoted had actually been written in like the 12th century or something. So I just changed a few words, and everything was hunky-dory. Nice. Awesome. So that's where the title came from. Those poor lawyers getting yelled at. I know, poor baby. On the next episode of Better Call Saul, he gets yelled at. <laughs> I adore that title, by the way. And Thank a few you. years ago, I was at a, I was at a convention in uh, Convergence in Minneapolis, and there was a shirt, and on the back of the shirt was the entire quote from the episode. Wow. The version that you and Lydia wrote. Um, and... And it was attributed to Jeffrey McLean Robbins, oh. um, as if he was like a real person. That's Jeffrey Robbins. That's awesome. I, I looked at this shirt and I'm like, "This is. Did you guys do this? Because I was the, one of the guests of honor at this particular convention. I said, "Do you guys do this for me?" And they're like, "What are you talking about?" Like, "Well, this is from my show." They're like, "Well." You may have used it in the show, but it's Jeffrey Robbins' quote. I'm like, oh my god, like, guys! Jeffrey wow, Robbins is a fictional character from my. Show. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, what? And they didn't even know that, but they just thought it was a great quote, so they put it on the back of the T-shirt. So I have. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Well, one of the best things that ever happened to me. Uh, that came through this is that um, I was at a convention. Um, I think you were there too, Greg. I think it was the last one we were ever at together. And a guy in the audience uh, said that his dream his whole life had been to be a librarian. And when he applied to um, librarian school, whatever, you know, I'm not, I don't know a lot about universities, but when he were, uh, was going to get his degree, he used that poem uh, to explain why he wanted to be a librarian, and he got in. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It's Terrific. Amazing. It's incredible. <laughs> you don't think about that stuff. You're wrapped up in the show, and you're doing your work. And for me, I rarely even see any of the episodes that I write because by the time they air, I have moved on to the next show. So to understand that someone actually 
watched it and it actually helped them in some way is just mind-blowing. When your words really, like, hit someone and really affect their lives, it's that's that's got to be a, yeah, a good feeling. I'm, yeah, because I'm just, basically, I'm sitting in my kitchen making stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Jeffrey Robbins. He's only in two episodes, but he's a very memorable character. Well, I mean, yeah. we should give some credit, really, to Paul Winfield, who just... All, all of um, the credit to Paul Winfield, yes. Yeah, I yes, mean... he was uh, amazing. Yeah, truly, the late, great Paul Winfield, just, uh, just he got the character, and he just brought so yep. much to it. Um, but the words were there. I mean, you know, there's this great line where... Um, Jeffrey is uh, looking up an address in the in the phone book. Um, by the way, there were th- these things called phone books. I was just going <laughs> to say, what one? Side step to explain what where phone you could books look, were. There were <laughs> you could look up uh, addresses and phone numbers. That's why they were called phone books. They were these big. <laughs> There were white pages and yellow pages. But anyway, that aside, he's just looking up an address in the phone book. And and uh, when he comes up with the address and he finds it, Hudson, he can't read, but also just doesn't understand the concept of a phone book, um, <laughs> much as our modern audience doesn't probably, um, uh, goes, wow, magic book. And then um, Jeffrey has this line, aren't they all? Aren't which is a great all? line. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great line to begin with, and then just the way Paul threw it out there, just laid it out there. I just, you know, yep. hearing it again last night, I'm like, oh my god, that is a moment. You know, that is such a cool moment in the show. <laughs> um, you know, obviously it's a show about literacy, so that's hitting the mark, right? But just the way he read it was just so yep. elegant. I don't know how else to put it. No, that's a good word. That's a good word. Yeah. It was. And so, you know, a lot of that, the writing's there without a doubt, but also a lot of it was really what um, Paul brought to the part. He was just so good. I mean, you know, and Paul was always good. Always. Well, he, <laughs> but, he, <laughs> <laughs> he gave me the one, the most, one of the most terrifying moments in my life after they did the first read through before uh, while they were because they basically did the read through while they were recording um when it was over Paul Winfield stood up and said who wrote this and i was like oh shit and i wanted to oh i said a bad word i wanted to run because i didn't know what he was going to say and uh if i remember correctly greg pushed me a few steps forward and <laughs> paul winfield <laughs> not me dude me. And Paul Winfield looked at me and did, um, he gave me a standing ovation and the rest of the cast joined in. So from terror to uh, utter geeky embarrassment in 30 seconds. Oh, what a great moment. That's awesome. It was such a great moment. Yeah. Well, everyone who, I mean, everyone who came in, to do voices for Gargoyles, they were all incredible. I'm sure we're going to talk about that later, but they were all amazing. 
just wonderful yeah, it's de- people. Definitely a gifted show on, on the voice actor on every level, really. Mm-hmm. But amazing voice actors. Yes, yes, and such fun people. Oh my god. This episode also reintroduces Macbeth after a fairly long absence from his first appearance, and it really adds so many layers to him. And that monologue he delivers in front of Broadway about Camelot is just beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, my big regret about the episode is is really the uh, previously. Um, this was the episode that sort of taught me to stop on any show I did after Gargoyle to never do previously segments at the beginning of the episode, um, or at least to do them very, very differently because um, the previously was all about Macbeth because we hadn't seen him in a while. So it's like, Oh, we better set up Macbeth so the audience knows. But of course the problem with that is that in the script that Lydia and Bridge did, you don't realize it's Macbeth until the end of act one. And so by doing the whole previously about Macbeth, the audience you showed your hand. The, yeah, yeah, we really did, and that that was totally my fault, one hundred percent my fault. Like I should have known better, <laughs> but like I said, I was a new producer, and and uh, and so it's There's like, oh well, the episode's about Macbeth. We should do a previously about Macbeth, Macbeth, and then I didn't focus on the fact, yeah, but that's a reveal, um, and I spoiled the episode um and that has made me crazy for only 27 years or so but um <laughs> but otherwise i do think it's a great episode for Macbeth. again a lot of credit to john reese davies who's amazing in the role of Macbeth. um but also i think that you know it's that great moment at the end of the episode where he does the the anti-villain thing, you know, where uh, it's all building to this battle um, between Goliath and him and what's going to happen. And he's got Broadway as a hostage. And and then he hears what Broadway and Hudson have to say. And all his fury about these scrolls being a diary. He's got that great line. I don't know. I think I jotted it down, but... Oh, yeah, this is a diary. Where are the spells? You know, he thought he was getting power, a spell book. And so initially, he's, like, completely disappointed that it's only a diary, that it's a journal. And then through these two gargoyles, he sort of thinks, no, wait, these are precious. And all these guys want to do, he realizes, is give these journals to the world, you know. And he's like, I don't need to fight you over that. Just take your stuff, take your gargoyles, and go. Um, and that, to me, that's one of the things that made our series as a whole unique, is that our villain motivation wasn't like, I want revenge, or I want, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just to punish you guys. Or uh, mm-hmm. There was a logic, you know, to their motivations that I think it was stronger than a lot of shows that existed back in that. Much more layers Um, than, you know, your bebop and rock studies of the group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that allowed him. And I don't feel like it's anticlimactic. He just sort of, because he's learned the lesson too. And it was a lesson Mm -hmm. that he already kind of knew because 
the way he talked about Camelot with Broadway, as you said, Greg, is it's this wonderful sort of speech that came from reading. And so when he hears that he sort of um, infected Broadway with the love of reading and realizes that, okay, this, I didn't get my spell, but this is still pretty cool. So just take them and go. It's okay. You know, um, that's the kind of thing that I think we could get with, with some of our antagonists. I won't even call them villains, but antagonists like Macbeth, um, that you just couldn't get out of most TV series back in that, those days, I don't think. Yep. It was fantastic. And I'm thinking, you mentioned Goliath was always a reader, which he was since pretty much the first episode of the series. And he came from a time when uh, literacy wasn't widespread. Who taught him? I think really he probably learned so I- that he could read the captions on the cartoons he was watching. Um. <laughs> <laughs> there was- Catherine. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, that makes sense. Simona learned from him. So, right. So, I really want it to be uh, Catherine. <laughs> but that doesn't make, that I know doesn't make sense because Catherine hated Goliath until the night, uh, until he saved He's, her life, basically. Yeah. Oh, I have it backwards. <laughs> so there was I no thought time they for started, okay, I thought they started out as friends. This is how good my memory is. I thought they started out as friends and then she felt betrayed or something. I could have made that up. No, she was terrified of her father had uh malcolm uh had unintentionally instilled her with a, a fear and contempt for gargoyles as a kid and oh, okay uh, then i'll go with demona yeah i think that's the answer demona <laughs> yeah and uh demona learned from the archmage yeah he's from being in proximity to the archmage right and she would, um, any knowledge that he had that she could get her hands on, she would have wanted, even before she was evil. Yeah. Because she was just so ambitious. Right. This is one of those I'm a native New Yorker questions. I love trying to figure out where the locations of all these uh, fictional, these homes, these buildings are. And um, I've always kind of wondered where Robin's house was. In City of Stone Part 2, it's clearly in uptown Manhattan, but in this episode, it seems to be more along the lines of Long Island because Hudson falls into the Long Island Sound, I believe. That's a great well, he falls question. Into the water. I falls into the water. I am very sure we very intensely left it very vague. And so exactly what water he was falling into a river, the sound, the harbor. We don't know. From the uh, episode itself to sort of judge. But I think the idea is, is that, yeah, he washes up uh, on, uh, I mean, uh, between the three episodes we've seen with, I mean, the two episodes in the one comic book that we've seen with Robin, um, it's clear he lives in Manhattan somewhere. Um, and obviously he lives on one of the rivers. I don't think we ever specified anything more than that. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't. New Yorker, Greg, you tell us. Make it work. Make it work. <laughs> All right, I will. <laughs> well, Macbeth's mansion, I would, I would figure, as far uptown as you can get, beyond the cloisters, even just below the Bronx. <laughs> Macbeth's mansion 
suffers from one of these things. So does McSteps airplane, VTOL airplanes. I noticed last night. They all come with these guns that are capable of shooting themselves. Like uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the gun on the gun on uh, that airplane, Bengal fires uh, hits its own wing. It's the plane's own wing. That's not a smart design. <laughs> and, the, and those guns on the turrets at, at the best place also have a tendency also shoot to the- blowing up the actual house that they're trying to protect. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, the, let's get turret guns. That sounds like a good plan. And then you see them in action. You go, yeah, that was not a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. One thing I do clearly remember, I don't have a copy of it anymore, but I believe this episode got a write-up in the New York Times shortly after it premiered. Yes, it did. I don't remember. I believe it. We should track that down. (laughs) It was a half a page above the fold. We really should track that down. Nice. Yes. They, they didn't. It was condescending, but they didn't hate it. Ah. <laughs> That's a very fine line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the New York Times is good at fine lines. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was certainly surprised. <laughs> okay, Lydia Duane. Diane yes. Dwayne, Lydia Morano. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I... And then there was and and then her husband, uh Arthur Morwood Smith, who was a yes. combo of Art Cover, Arthur Byron Cover and Peter Morwood, who were Lydia yes. and Diane's husband. Yes, I am so horrible at names that I came very close to naming my youngest child D'Artagnan. So if I can steal names from other people, I will do it always in everything I write. I I can't. I I mean, and my son is named Fox, so <laughs> I, I steal names too. <laughs> well, all of my kids are named for writers. My my first child, uh, Mallory, for Sir uh, Arthur Mallory, is it Arthur Mallory? Whoever wrote uh, the first King Thomas. Arthur. Tom, thank you. Everybody's all yelling the name at me. Thank you. Um, my middle kid is Dashiell for Dashiell Hammett, and my youngest is Alexander for Alexander Dumas. Dumas. So nice. Nice. I've had the pleasure. Almost D'Artagnan. <laughs> I've had the pl- I've had the pleasure of meeting Mallory at a few of the Gargoyles conventions. She's really cool, and I'm not just saying that because you're here and you're her mom. <laughs> No, no, uh, my daughter. She's good people. She's real good people. She is an old soul, and she was the single most difficult human being on the planet for <laughs> anyone to raise. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we survived. <laughs> um, yeah, she's an incredible human being. But holy moly, what a we, what a kid! <laughs> we cast her in one of the 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 gathering radio plays as puck one year and uh-huh. uh and uh we've been friends ever since she's just 
quite the character. I absolutely adore her. Yeah, she's uh and she's she's an amazing actress, but um <laughs> when she was like 4 um the uh late David Wise's wife Patty cuz everybody kept telling us we need to get Mallory into acting. And Patty, who was an actress, sat Mallory down and was talking to her about acting. And she was explaining who the different people in the crew are. And she was talking about the director who's in charge. And my four-year-old daughter said, "Um, okay, the director's in charge, but what if I have a better idea? (laughs) And Patty was like... (laughs) Patty was like, no, this is not going to (laughs) work. Um, That's by the way, if you are friends, thing. if you are friends with my daughter, if you ever need to put her in her place, if you can, you just remind her that Tim Curry smooched her mommy. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, well, she hold a, it over her head. <laughs> yep, I do all the time. <laughs> She had a chance to come to a recording session when Tim was there as Dr. Severius, and he always greeted me with a kiss on the cheek, and she decided that day to stay home and play video games with her friends on a LAN line, is that right? Um, Whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah, so she decided to stay home and didn't get smooched, and if I need to remind her who's the mom, that's where we go. (laughs) moving back to to the episode this uh, introduces Macbeth's two henchmen Banquo and Flans names never actually said in the episode Um, are those real names for them code names or just placeholders what do you think that's a Greg question Uh, my thought was that um, Macbeth sort of was like uh, I'm going to call you Banquo and you Fleon. And they were like, but, and he's like, it's just what I'm going to call you. I, I don't want to have to remember your name. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's in the phone book as Linux Macduff. <laughs> we he actually is in the phone book under that name. <laughs> Michael and I, I don't remember, Bryn, if you were there or not, but Michael and I had this whole discussion of, at a lunch one day, not like a work discussion, but just like, what does Macbeth think about the play Macbeth? And I <laughs> no, was I like, wasn't there. I like to think he was amused by it, you know, just <laughs> like, uh, you know, it, that he knew Shakespeare and thought Shakespeare was a good guy and Shakespeare wrote this play and Macbeth was like, that has got nothing to do with reality. But, you know, it's a great play. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's, he like had a choice. I could either be really insulted by this or just take it in stride. So I, I think it, he's like, it made me famous. You know, uh, how many Scottish <laughs> Kings do people remember in, in, uh, you know, 1994. And the answer is, well, you know, unless you're a historian, there's one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and that's me. So, I'm going to take it. I mean, it it could have taken him Uh, decades and years and years and years before he decided to warm up to the idea that it was a good play. I mean, I think the interesting thing is that 
you know, you look at the play and you look at particularly at Lady Macbeth, and I think that's the piece that probably would have bugged him the most if he's thinking of Gruach. But at the point where he goes, well, clearly this is supposed to be Demona, not Gruach. Mm-hmm. Um, then yeah, I'm okay with it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so I, you know, it was, uh, I, I like to think, I think that's the conclusion that Michael and I re- reached ultimately was that, yeah, he's, he's like, okay, I, I've decided not to be angry about it. So I'm going to embrace it. So yeah, for Banquo and Fleance, the interesting thing about Banquo, um, just the model. So on the model sheet, when that was designed, I want to say Mike Bosberg designed it, but I'm, I may be wrong. It's so long ago. Um, he had Banco sort of squinting out of one eye on the model sheet, which was not meant to be like a permanent pose. But there are entire sequences where Banco's got one eye shut. Not through the whole episode, but for entire sequences where he looks like Popeye. Uh, he's got one eye shut, and it's because... Whoever animated that sequence was like, oh, this guy only has one eye. And the other one's <laughs> shut. And, and I remember Frank and I getting that back and going, oh, shit. Um, oh. It, was just too, it was just too much of it to fix, you know. Um, this wasn't one of our, I mean, I love this episode, but, and we've certainly had worse animated episodes, but obviously this one isn't one of our better looking ones. Particularly the... yeah. Early sequences on the water are really painful, and and Elisa's with that baseball hat is so cute in theory, but not actually on the screen. <laughs> um, I would have liked to see a good drawing of her with that hat, and there just isn't any. Um, just but, none. Uh, there's just none. Um, but I uh, I do think that. Uh, that was one of the things where it was just like, uh, you know, most of the animators who worked on the episode with Banquo, they got it, you know, his eyes, he has two eyes and whatever, but, but there was clearly one guy who worked on this one sequence where he's literally got that one eye shut, like Popeye through the entire sequence from beginning <laughs> to end. He ne- it never opened. And so that taught us a lesson about shipping model sheets, you know, because it, I mean, that's taught me a lesson even about expression. Like if I get a model sheet on Young Justice or something where, you know, it, you talk about RBF or, or resting any face, you know, resting anything face where it's too pronounced in one direction where the expression isn't neutral enough, always looks angry or has a big grin, you know, on it or something like that. And you're like, mm-hmm. you understand that we're going to get this shot after shot after shot because this becomes the base. So we've got to make this expression more neutral and we definitely don't want to have things like a squint in there unless, you know, he really does only have one eye kind of thing. And, uh, but you know, again, lessons learned from the early days. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the moments I really like is when uh, Hudson tells Robbins his name and he explains like the river and I just think that is so was so cute. I, just, 
It's adorable. Yeah, love I love Hudson so much. I loved writing for Hudson. I think of all the gargoyles, he is the one I understood the best. And, of course, with Ed Asner doing the voice, it, you could have him do anything. I mean, it, you could have him yeah. do anything. And so, uh, I mean, the rest of them were all fabulous as well. I mean, Keith David and, oh, my God, Jeff Bennett. But, um, yeah, I just I just understood Hudson the best, which is kind of weird because I'm Hudson's age now, but I think I was in my 40s back then, so I don't, I don't know why I grokked him so well, but he was my favorite to write for always. I mean, the, the, my favorite episode, this is a good episode, and I love this episode, and I'm proud of this episode, but the favorite one that I wrote was Long Way to Morning, which is 50% Hudson and 50% Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. it's a good one. That was a great episode yeah. of Fantastic. And and it was just pure pleasure to write because um as I said, Ed Asner could do anything. Uh, speaking of can't do anything, I'm glad Frank Welker finally gets to actually talk as a character here as opposed to doing animal noises, which he is <laughs> great at, but he's also a fantastic voice actor on top of that. He is and he is so funny. Um, coming into a recording session one day, I had been talking to a someone, I don't know who, and and I think a, maybe a couple of, of girls, and their attitude was, oh, my God, you know Frank Welker? And they were swooning. It might have been at Comic-Con. But anyway, I repeated this to Frank, and he turned purple and lost the ability to speak. <laughs> <laughs> He is so sweet and so not really understanding. I mean, he has to know how skilled he is, but I don't think he knows how good he is if you understand the distinction. Yeah. Well, he can fly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tell you the fun story. First time I met Frank was... um, uh, went to a recording of Atlantis with mm-hmm. Greg. Um, mm-hmm. And Greg's like, this is Frank. And I was like, you know, like immediately I went to Scooby-Doo, you know, like, mm-hmm. hey, let's talk, you know, I've been, been a fan for a long time. Let's talk about this. And Greg had no idea that he was Freddie on Scooby-Doo. <laughs> 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 I was, I'm like, I, there's a lot of times when I'm, it's very rare when I'm stunned and I don't know what to say, but that I was like, wait, wait, wait what, what did, wait. No. <laughs> he was Megatron too, Greg. One of the most fun recording sessions, I, we needed a voice. We just needed, uh, cause you know, the, all the actors would do their main voices. And then if we needed, just a background voice or a one-shot voice or whatever, they're allowed to do a certain amount before you have to pay them some more. So we had, like, one one stupid little line that that really we probably could have cut, but um, Frank Welker was going to do that line, and he'd do a voice, and Jeff Bennett would say, that's Papa Smurf. 
And then he'd do another voice, and Jeff would say, nope, that's... <laughs> and they just went through basically his entire repertoire. Just calling him out on everything. Nice. Yep. <laughs> and is there anything else left to discuss about this particular episode? Celebrity hockey. <laughs> yes, celebrity hockey. Even NECA picked up on that one for their buy on the on the Hudson figure. Uh, um, I, I just... I don't know who came up with that. I don't know if that was you, Bryn, or Lydia, or Michael, or who, but it it always makes me smile. Just the idea <laughs> of there's this show on TV called Celebrity Hockey. Just, <laughs> I adore it. So I've used it since in, like, multiple... I mean, I've used it in comics, but I've used it in multiple TV series. I just, just love the idea of Celebrity Hockey. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure that was me because reality TV was uh we all believed that it was going to kill us. We all believed that that celebrity anything was going to kill us. Um my my last thought on this episode is that um I want to know how a blind person teaches a sighted person to read. Well, out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just assuming he's teaching That's... him Braille. I don't know. <laughs> we, it wasn't until good... like right. decades later that occurred to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. I still haven't seen the episode, actually, but um, I for some reason needed to go back to the script a few years ago and I read it and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> How does this work? Well, <laughs> I, if you're challenging me, uh, there are, uh, cards that you can get, um, where the letters are raised. In other okay. words, if, you, you wouldn't read a whole book this way because it would just take you way too long. Right. But um so if if Hudson could look at these raised letters so that he got the shapes and then Right, um, and right. Jeff Robinson would know. Would, yeah. Robinson would know. Jeff would feel them and go, Okay, that's an L, it makes the L sound, you know. And then right. Hudson just takes the newspaper and starts trying to sound things out and Right. Jeffrey being a pretty smart guy I'm making this shit up right now as we speak. But, I know you um, are. I but, know you are. But Jeffrey goes, you know, from context can tell what the next word's supposed to be, so if Hudson's tripping over a word with, like, an O-U-G-H in it, like, mm-hmm. you know, through or something like that, and trying mm-hmm. to pronounce it like throg, huh, you know, mm-hmm. Jeffrey can say, oh, that's that, and Hudson would say, this language makes no sense, and Jeffrey would say, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's difficult, but it's still worth it, keep going, keep going, you know. <laughs> That makes sense. I I buy it. Well, I, I totally think buy Hudson it. Hudson had uh, other people helping him as well with Jeffrey. Yes, that makes sense too. But I sure. definitely think uh, Elisa and Goliath would help him for sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Before we begin to wrap things up, Bryn, you were. A- 
it's fair to say you were a veteran of the of American action drama cartoons and cartoons in general. You said he started back in the early '80s with Masters of the Universe. What was it like watching the type of storytelling in these cartoons evolve, but also helping to push them to evolve? Because Masters of the Universe to say Ninja Turtles to Batman to Gargoyles—that's quite a progression. Mm-hmm. Um. I have always pushed and pushed um, watching animation evolve um, and grow up a little bit was really exciting but at the same time in the 80s when they were animating everything I mean we had Gilligan's Planet we had Rubik's Cube (laughs) we had uh all kinds of stuff that was just... I mean, I wrote Potato Head Kids. Um, But, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you're not thinking about that kind of stuff. Um, I was never allowed really to not be aware that I was the only girl on the boys' playground. So when I started, there were only four women in all of America uh, writing animation. One was me, one was Diane Duane, and the other two were named Diana, but I can't remember either of their last names. So um, being in the hot center of it, all you're thinking about is, crap, I've got an outline due on Tuesday, I've got a final script for another episode due on Thursday, and I've got a premise due on Friday. So you're just you're just getting through it. Um, it was wonderful to be able to write things. I mean, I started at Filmation Guys where we couldn't have anyone stand up or sit down. We couldn't have anybody leave or enter a room. If we could get away with it, we had people talk in three-quarter profile so they didn't have to animate their mouths. Um, and then getting to do stuff at the level of Batman the Animated Series and Gargoyles where you actually could say Goliath raises an eyebrow and get it animated was just an incredible privilege. And the, the level of voice actors we had, um, I worked with, you know, Frank Parr was both on Batman the Animated Series and Gargoyles, and Frank and I... Um, I don't know, we're some kind of cartoon soul twins or something because on Batman, I could I could put in the script for Frank, a uh, 30-second battle involves a chair, Batman wins. And that's all I had to say because he could read my mind. And so getting <laughs> to work with him on Gargoyles as well was purest privilege, just wonderful. So... Yeah, I don't know that I did anything to drive the progression, except that if you show me a boundary, I'm going to either kick it or jump over it. Um, but being being able to experience that progression was wonderful. It was a blessing. All right. Um, before we begin, begin to wrap up, is there anything either of you two would like to plug? <laughs> I will uh, plug Young Justice Comics. Uh, Young Justice <laughs> Targets. The first issue is now available both uh, uh, digitally and uh, at comic book stores. 
full version of it. Um, and issue two is available digitally. Uh, and uh, next month, uh, issue three comes out and issue two will be available in stores. So, uh, and it's a six issue miniseries, Young Justice Target. So I hope people will pick that up. And meanwhile, I hope they keep binging Gargoyles <laughs> on Disney Plus. And, uh, and we are, uh, you know, um, working on the second issue of the Gargoyles comic, which Dynamite Comics just announced. Um, there actually is something out there, and congratulations on that, Greg, and there actually is something I want to plug. My middle kid, Dashiell Reeves, has recently been hired as a writer of all things comic book related uh, for Screen Rant. So look for his cool. name, Dashiell Reeves. Nice. Uh, I will. Yeah. Well, Bren, we want to thank you for coming on the show. It was a delight to talk with you and to talk about this fantastic episode. It was, it's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure, Bryn. Thank you so much for joining us. You are so very welcome. This has been so much fun. And and Greg, thank you again. And Jennifer, thank you for everything you do. I'm glad you're feeling better. Oh, yeah, me too. COVID sucks. Wear a mask. Oh, my fella just had it. It's terrible. It's terrible. Oh, I was so careful. Just. He is too. <laughs> so he, he was careful in Can he lives in Canada and he was careful there and he caught it in freaking Dallas at the airport. Oh. Dallas yeah. has cooties anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to our listeners from Dallas, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Take care. Take care and join us Bye, next everybody. time for Yeah. Thank you for listening and join us next time for The Mirror. written word is all that stands between memory and oblivion. Without books as our anchors, we are cast adrift, neither teaching nor learning. They are windows on the past, mirrors on the present, and prisms reflecting all possible futures. Books are lighthouses erected in the dark sea of time.